Okay, guys, I'm welcoming back Travis Myers to our show. He joined us earlier this year, and you'll probably remember him. He is a retired detective from New York City who worked in the Bronx and is now a co-author with his sister, Natasha Myers Masaguera. And they have written the Tommy Keene Detective series. There are three books. There is Sister Margaret, Hayden John Marshall, and Jenny Black. And now they are writing their fourth. So, Travis, how has this been, writing the fourth book? It's going well, Kayla. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it's a process, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes me a while to, to actually sketch out the book. That's what I, that's what I call it, I, I, you know, to get the, the bones down. Yeah. Then I send it to my sister, and she works on it for, you know, however long it takes her, a couple of weeks, a couple of months to, to set it straight. Okay. Sends it back to me. Then I go through the approvals. We go through the whole rewriting process. And what's then done, then it's off to editing and press and the entire thing. From me finishing the story... Probably an additional six months after that before the book is ready to go to, to go uh, to print. Oh, awesome. So it's just like a long process. It is. Kind of been working on that all year. Exactly, yes. Yeah, Yeah. we, we thought we were going to be banging these out much quicker, but it, it does. Yeah, I mean, we kind of work on two or three things at a time, but mm-hmm. it does take just about a year for the whole process yeah. to take place. And a lot of that's out of our hands. We have nothing to do with it, you know, once once we're done with it. But that's what it takes. Totally. I'm sure there are lots of, like, loopholes jump to jump through just to get a book published. So um, I have the three books, and I am really trying to do better, like, in general at reading books because I love reading. But over the last couple years since I started the podcast, I've had – like such such little time. So just around Thanksgiving, I started Sister Margaret and I'm going to, um, I'm like challenging myself to upload a book review on my podcast social media every month. So I'm going to include that in my December one. That will be my first one that I start like a book review. I'm going to try to do it every month, force myself to read, which I love doing. I just have to make the time. And so I'll have to like continue that with the other ones as I go through the months. But Sister Margaret will be in December for sure. Well, I certainly, I really look forward to hearing what you have to say. And uh, I know you're a crime fan, Right. But remember, this is crime. It's not going to be pretty. Nope. I get that. That And those are the things I'll be reading and putting onto my social media is like true crime books and then like crime fiction and mystery right. and stuff like that. So it will tie in perfectly. I'm excited. Well, I'm excited to hear what you think. Yeah. And then your fourth one, I hope to be done with all three of them by the time this fourth book comes out. Oh, let's hope. Let's hope so. So if you guys remember, Travis came on and we talked about the books and and he told us a lot of stories from his real life detective work when he was, it's the NYPD. Yes, ma'am. And he was working in the Bronx. So he brought us a couple stories and he has some more for us today. And I, I think everybody loved this because it's always nice to hear from real life people who have been out there, who have done the work, who have like this real experience to bring. Good. Well, I'm glad everybody loved it. That's good. I hope we were, I hope, I hope we were well received. Yeah. I thought it was a great episode. So you've got a couple other things for us today. Let's kind of jump into that first one. Okay, yeah. Well, um, you know, through just our, our conversations that are not privy to the listening audience, you know, we were chatting about stuff that you, you know, what, what would you want to hear? Mm-hmm. And so I have a couple of, uh, I'm not going to say good stories, they're fairly awful stories. Right. And uh, I guess I'll just get started with the first one, which is about um, four teenagers. What was it? LaShonda, Kevin, Michael, and Trey. And... Uh, the story starts out with LaShonda and Kevin uh, deciding that the, you know, bored, poor, young te- teenagers, you know, living in an awful neighborhood. And they decide to say that they're going to catch a Vic. And catching a Vic is, you know, street terminology for, you know, finding a victim. Mm-hmm. They're going to victimize somebody today. They decided they're going to go, you know, commit some robberies, burglaries, whatever it is that they decide to do that day. Okay. And um, so LaShonda, she... Uh, remembers, you know, or realizes she, she tells Kevin, she's got the, uh, this old man that she knows who's always asking for sexual favors. And, uh, okay. he is, and these kids are 14, right? Correct. I'm sorry. Yes. They're, okay. they're, the two of them are 14 years old at the time. Okay. Um, okay. 
And so they decide they're going to go and visit this fella and rob him, mm-hmm. you know. And it's actually mm-hmm. not an unusual ploy, you know, to use, you know, prostitution or a sexual favor to uh, lure somebody in to, their, to this robbery. And in this case, it was a home invasion um, where, uh, you know, they did exactly, you know, what you imagine. They went to his apartment. Uh, they entered the apartment under the, the guise that she was going to sleep with him for money. Okay, and this this uh, gentleman who I cannot I find I can remember their first names I can't remember his name at the moment, but he was seventy two years old. He was an older fella. All oh, right. Okay. They get there and uh, you know and again you know we may feel bad for him as a victim, but remember he's also trying to have sex with a fourteen year old girl. Yeah, I All was right? thinking that too <laughs> about so, it's like yes sad that this is happening and that that is the thing with true crime though is it is always like a gray area it's not black and white it is sad when someone gets murdered but like you said no absolutely is... nothing is ever black and white gala and, yeah. and you know from all the stories that you do it's it's always so murky and muddy and sometimes mm-hmm. that makes it even more shocking is just how you right. know ridiculous people choose to live their lives um yeah, absolutely. so anyway they uh they go to visit this fella and um you know, quickly it goes wrong for this gentleman, and they hold him at knife point and duct tape him to a chair, okay? Oh. And once they duct tape him to the chair, they, you know, begin to ransack his apartment and go through everything. And in finding a little bit of cash and, you know, whatever else they found that they felt was worthwhile, um, uh, they get a hold of his wallet, his credit cards, his credit cards, his keys, etc., and mm-hmm. uh, they demand, you know, they tell him, you know, we're going to kill you if you don't give us your PIN number. He says, no problem. I'm going to give you my PIN number, you know, to the card so they can go and take cash out of the bank, uh, uh, the ATM. Right. While they're also doing this, they discover a pistol that the man has, a, uh, a little 38 special. Um, and okay. this overjoys these teenagers because, you know, a pistol is a very powerful thing to have when you're a young street kid. You know? Ooh, yeah, scary thing uh, to have too. So as as the day goes on, um, you know they go and they do take money out of this gentleman's ATM. You know they spend it. They come back. Well, back then I'm not sure. I believe it was only three hundred dollars a day you could take. You know I'm going to go back. This is like 25 years ago. Oh, okay. I believe today you know the, the limit is 500 or 800 you can get on your ATM. So okay. they took out the max. Of course they spent it. They came back. Uh, decided that, you know, this was now their apartment. They were going to hang out there and live there and um, eat his food and spend his money. While doing this, all right, some somewhere along the, the way on the first or second day, they also decided they had to kill this gentleman. So they did. Uh, they and stabbed did, him to death. Oh, they you know, stabbed with his him own, to death. Aww. With his own, yes, correct, with his own, you know, kitchen knife. And uh, what do you call it? A small, a smaller... Um, what do you call it? Pocket knife that Kevin had. Wow. That seems so brutal. They dragged the body and the chair into the bedroom. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And covered him with a blanket. And they continued to live in this apartment for a few more days. All right. Mm -hmm. And now that they had this firearm, they enlisted the, the, the help of their other two friends who I had mentioned, Michael and Trey. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael, I believe was 14 and Trey was 13. Okay. And so now there's four of them and they go out to do again, some more crimes. All right. They had robbed a Chinese restaurant, um, which they had gotten away with. And then they went and robbed a bodega, which is a, a typically a Spanish, Dominican or Puerto Rican owned delicatessen. Okay. okay. Um, and during that robbery, they shot the person behind the counter, who I believe was the owner or the owner's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, they, she did not die. She survived. Okay. But, uh, you know, again, they shot her. So here now they've committed a, ro- a, a murder, a homicide, and a, a home invasion that nobody knows about. Okay. They take right. these other two kids around with this little gang that they have, and they've committed these two robberies. Um, wow. Wow. Another day or two passes, okay, and I don't know what other mayhem they got into. Uh-huh. And the, I believe it was a 13-year-old, you know, had been talking about this at school. Okay. All right? Yeah. And during this time, uh, you know, this, it's like anything. People can't keep their mouths shut. So, 
he told somebody who told somebody who told somebody. And now the school is calling the police, all right? Uh-huh. Which, of course, is the right thing to do. Um, they call the police. We arrive. We're, we're looking for them as far as the burglaries. We have no idea about these murders, right? Okay. At the same time that this is happening, okay, the older boy, again, who's 14 also, uh, Michael, all right, He's okay. in the apartment with them, and he's like, look, I can't have any part of this, man. This is not what I, I was cut out for. I can't believe we have this, you know, dead body in the, <laughs> in the other room. Yeah. And, you know, that put the fear of being ratted out into LaShonda and Kevin. Right. Who then decide, well, we're going to get rid of Michael. And they oh, do. Oh, my God. They hold him down in the apartment. They yeah. wrap the pistol up in a pillow. And they shoot him twice in the head. Oh, my right. gosh. Um, so here they are now. They've just committed two homicides, one shooting, and two robberies that we know of. Yeah, um, and the store owner that was shot, he did not die. Was Did he not. No, it was shot? a woman. Yeah, she, she oh, did not okay. die. Okay. She survived. She okay. And was able to testify later on. Correct. Okay. Um, the, the, the 13-year-old Trey now, okay, is picked up by us, all right, because the school called. We right. grab him, we bring him back, and his mother, all right, uh, comes to the precinct, and mm-hmm. she lays down the law, all right? And this girl, he, she forces him to I confess, give all the names, addresses, etc. Now, understand, we still don't know, under, know that there's been a murder committed at this stage of the game, and he says, but they also stabbed somebody, Okay. And we're like, oh, like okay, what? so they shot yeah. somebody here and they stabbed somebody there. But we don't know that it's a homicide yet, okay? Okay. We go and scoop up both kids, all right? We get one at the, the high school. He wasn't in high school at the mm-hmm. time. He was hanging out outside uh, and happened to be armed with a knife, which we removed from his person. And we pick up the girl, uh, LaShonda, at her home. Okay. Um, and, again, we pick her up. Mm-hmm. It takes us a little while to get the address because although the kids knew where the building was, they didn't know exactly where the address was. Okay. Okay. We go to the address and what do we find? We have two dead bodies. Oh my gosh. We, it was, you know, oh my gosh, we could not believe. We were completely shocked because, again, Trey didn't know that Michael had been killed. Okay. Oh, okay. He did know about the older man, but all he had to say about him was that he was stabbed. Right, so you didn't... Not that he was dead. Not that he was killed. Correct. So you're Correct. thinking they maybe stabbed this guy, he was wounded, he got away, but now you're seeing that not only did they kill him... Well, he just never mentioned the dead child. part. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that's really the end of that story. It's, a, it's, you know, outside of the court proceedings, which, again, was all taken to... Being all minors, this went into uh, uh, you know uh, youth youth court, and you know it was adjudicated through there. But what a tragic, tragic case, and something that um, was such a surprise ending for us doing the investigation because here mm-hmm. it all just landed in our lap at once. You know, yeah. Other detectives were looking for the robbery. This case came. We grabbed it. We grabbed the kids right away. Mm-hmm. Okay, picked them up. And here now we have two dead bodies in an apartment that yeah. had been there for days. That is shocking. Had, the, it was quite shocking. The brutality had, of it being two yes, kids. And they had covered, they had covered, what do you call it, uh, the old man up with blankets and many, many pieces of his, his clothing to try to keep the smell Oh. From enveloping the entire apartment, which had say, been like, again at this, po- at this point, he's been he's been dead for probably five days, you know. And as far as the uh, young boy too, they had put him after they had shot him. They had dragged him into the bedroom and then mm. just covered him with a blanket, also. Wow. You know? And uh, huh. so, were they just going to this home like when they could, or were they staying the night there and stuff? Because I'm they assuming were par- they were staying there. They were partying there. Just the four of them. They would go and, you know, get beer, marijuana, soda, chips, McDonald's, food, pizza, Chinese food, whatever it was, you know, and Mm -hmm. they were using it as their their clubhouse, you know, sleeping there. So were some of their parents just not super involved? They're not involved whatsoever. Okay. 
and except this one mom of except for this one mom who was yes trey's mother she she stood tall and straightened her son out you know uh verbally and physically right there in the police precinct to make sure that you know uh she was standing on the side of right yeah and that did bode well for him you know later on and of course you know he was involved in the the robberies but as a more as a uh you know, assistant than actually doing the robberies. Right. Yeah. I, that is just shocking. It's almost like more terrifying when you think of children who are able to commit crimes like this because they just seem too young to be able to have like that callousness of being in a home with two dead bodies. Oh, unbelievably calloused. Unbelievably yeah. callous. But a lot of times, sadly, Kayla, as you know, um, you know, so many of these, these children mature so quickly in these environments, um, because of everything that they live through and they witness at that, at, at, yeah. from a much, 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 much younger age, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also quite often a, a badge of honor, you know, and they just simply don't care. They really yeah. don't, you know, it's, it's tragic. Absolutely. It's that absolutely is tragic. so tragic because yeah, like you said, that does make sense that they would come from these homes that were probably not extremely loving and possibly abusive in their own right. And, you know, that can really nurture a monster. And it's sad oh, that, absolutely. you know, that's absolutely. the, the and, and from what we understand with, in particular with LaShonda, um, again, I never, you know, m- more often than not, we never know their true history or anything about them mm-hmm. other than these acts that they commit. But uh, she kind of kept all of these, you know, for lack of a better word, her little gang members, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in line. She was f- pretty much the leader. You know, she was the shooter. You know, she stabbed the old man along with uh, Kevin. Um, mm. But she did this uh, this manipulation, you know, through sexual favors. You know, right. so she would, she would, th- that combined with the fear that she was such a just insane young woman, all mm-hmm. right, that these boys would do anything she asked. Yeah. Like you know? she really was and, able uh, to gain. She was quite manipulative. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. That is very scary. And that's a, such a sad story. That poor little 13 year old. What was his name again? Michael? Uh, no, Trey. Trey. Is he the one that was killed? Michael was the one that was murdered. Okay, yeah, him, the one that was yeah. murdered. Like, so sad for him. He was him 14. Because oh, he was 14. Absolutely. Okay, so Trey was the only one that was But there. again, and it the whole thing is, is absolutely ridiculous and tragic, but back to that gray area where, again, it's, you know, you have to be careful who you hang out with because you kind of get what you ask for. Yeah, just you know? being in, like, that crowd, like, he obviously well, he just took, thinks he, he's hanging out with friends and, you know, they're obviously getting into trouble doing these he's robberies. Out, he's hanging out with friends in an apartment with a dead body, all right? Yeah. And he's going out and doing robberies with them, you know? Yeah. And then when he decides it's too much for him to handle, granted it may have been, took him two or three days to decide this. I'm sure he was guided by fear and I'm sure there were drugs and alcohol. I know there was mar- a lot of marijuana use involved. Uh-huh. But still... You are part, you are taking part in these heinous acts. Yeah. You know? Well, just to be able to be around a dead body. Like, I couldn't be around a decomposing body now as an adult. <laughs> no, most people could not. be in my home. Yeah, that's just, yes. like, not conceivable to me to do. So, yes, it is. That is a very scary situation. And, yeah, if that happens to you, please tattle for lack of a better word (laughs) yes right away immediately because that is such a dangerous situation and clearly dangerous people even though they're 14 years old yes yeah and that kind of talking about their lives um and how you know they're not raised the best and they come from these hard homes really does kind of lead us into that next story you were telling me about um and it is a foster care family which i I am so passionate about like the foster care stuff. I think a the system is broken for sure. B 
the kids that go into foster care just break my heart. I truly, my goal one day is to be a foster parent because it's just like, they're so traumatized in their real lives. And oftentimes they go into into foster care and they are just further traumatized because a lot of these people aren't doing it with the intent to just like provide a loving home for the kids. And this is probably in the true crime genre, what I'm most passionate about would be abuse kids and kids that are having to go into foster care. So this story really resonated with me and it's very yeah, sad. This is, this is a, a heartbreaking one and one that sticks with me, even though this was years and years ago. I remember when it happened. Um, I was a young uh, police officer, a uniformed police officer on patrol at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, we were actually working in a team of four on Fordham Road. And we got called into the precinct. You know, it was a manpower issue. There wasn't a, a, a lot of guys, and it was a call to come into the precinct rather than 911. Mm-hmm. And it was a, um, they asked myself and uh, a good friend of mine, Tommy, to take this case because we were both fathers. We were both young fathers. He had a, a little girl who was, I don't know, five or six at the time. And I had like a, my son was maybe 18 months to two years old at the time. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole idea is that we are fathers, we have young children, and, you know, as often as possible when we can assign the right person to the case, that's that's what we try to yeah. do. Yeah, no, I really think being a parent makes a big difference, like, in oh, your perspective. It absolutely. just, there's things as a parent that you're not going to gain that perspective until you are the parent, so. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. So. The sergeant called us in and said, hey, you know, you want to go take a look at this? And so we went up to this uh, uh, private house on Hull Avenue in the Bronx. It's a pretty tough, pretty tough street, uh, Hull Avenue was. and mm-hmm. um, But it was a very, very, very nice uh, family. Immaculate home. Everything was great, you know, when I walked in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the woman was uh, in her 40s. Um, we chatted for her a little while. She was the one who called the police uh-huh. right, or called us to the scene. Uh, her... Children were already grown and out of the home, and she and her and her husband decided to become foster parents and take care of these two boys, who mm-hmm. were brothers. They were they were both brothers. One was uh, six, going to be seven, and the other one was ten years old. Mm. And um, the her complaint was that she had on more than one occasion found just a little bit traces of blood in the toilet. When the the boy had used used the bathroom, the six year old. Okay, and, and this um, is the foster mom calling. This is the foster mom. So Correct. she's concerned. Correct. Okay. She's very she's well she is concerned, and then you know upon further examination, you know wiping his hiney with a tissue or whatever, she would find more traces of blood, mm-hmm. and it you know was once or twice, and you have to understand too. It seems so simple to most people. Well, just go to the doctor, just do this. We were called to the scene first. I don't know what the expense would have been for her to go to the doctor, or what what yeah. the deal was for them, but it was her first thing was to call the police. So we came. Yeah. Um, and we sit with this little boy, and at at uh, it's it was kind of cute. When I say cute, it's a sad story, but it yeah. was cute because quite often in these neighborhoods, people don't care for the police, even young children, because mm-hmm. they're taught that the police are bad. They they're taught to hate the the, the cops. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a very, very sad thing, something that I've never understood, because even if you are a bad guy and even if you don't like the police yourself, if your child is lost or, you know, some crime happens to them, you most certainly want them to go to the police. You know? So don't make them afraid of the police. Yeah. All right. But let's forget about that and get back to the story. <laughs> so, um, you know, we start chatting with a little guy and he is ecstatic because he thinks we've come to visit him, which we actually have. And, you know, we're in uniform Aww. and, you know, we're young you know, cops with our shiny badges and our guns and sticks and hats mm-hmm. and everything like that. And he's very, very excited about that. So we chat with him a little while, kind of befriend him. And then we start, you know, trying to ask him about uh, what's happened to him, you know. And he was right. immediately very embarrassed, okay, um, which, of course, is what you would expect. And it took, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes of, you know, just, again, chatting him up, being friendly uh, being as nice to him as we can, we could, telling him stories. Uh, and he actually, you know, told him, told us that his older brother, um, almost on a nightly basis, would, uh, you know, hurt him by put his, putting his thing inside of him, you know? 
Um, okay. And what it was is his older brother, who was only 10, okay, was actually raping this boy several times a week. The younger one, mm. correct. Yeah. Um, which is was just, you know, I mean, shocking for anybody. I don't care yeah. how hard a guy you think you are. It's something that you really can't believe that a little boy of 10 could do this to anybody, much less his yeah. little brother who's, you know, three or four years young, younger than him. Um, so, so, of course, we immediately do everything that we have to do as far as filling out the paperwork, you know, explaining everything to the the uh, the foster mother. We take all of this back to the precinct with us, mm-hmm. and their uh, child protective services are notified. They come and do their thing. The detectives are notified. They do their thing. It's basically out of our hands now because, again, we're just patrol officers. Right. Um, but the in the end, it turns out that... Uh, both boys were being sexually abused, being raped by a 14-year-old boy in their prior foster home, okay? Mm. And again, now, here we're still talking about boys here. A 14-year-old right. boy, although in our last story may be capable of murder, um, it is still quite a deranged thing for a 14-year-old boy to be acting this way. Absolutely. But I have no idea what sort of abuse went on to that child where he sadly learned it and just well, passed it on and passed it on yeah, and passed it on. Yeah, you can obviously see this is passed to the 10-year-old who probably knows little to who's, nothing about sex. So it's correct. passed to him who's doing it now who to, then his passed little it on brother. to his little brother. Yeah, so what? who passed it correct. to this kid? And, cause that, and, through, and through these, you know, these just horrific acts, you know, unspeakable acts, mm-hmm. um... The, you know, the older boy in, in, in the case of our two victims, you know, basically yeah, groomed these children in a way that they felt this was normal. The six-year-old didn't, didn't it hurt him terribly. It damaged him, but he thought it was all right. Do you understand? It, this right. is normal. This is life. This is the life that I live. Yeah. You know? And I can only imagine that the older brother, the 10-year-old, probably was made felt the same the way same. from the abuse that he was getting mm. you know to the mm-hmm. one or two years prior in the other foster home yeah and um and that's the the sad i mean there's again there's not much of a disposition to that uh sadly um you know it's all over out of our hands and it all goes through the youth program when kids when kids or people in general you know be it children or the homeless or you know people who are insane or whatever their problems are, once they're in that the, the system of the system itself, oh, so yeah. often, you know, things just, there is no disposition. There is no justice. There is, we talked about that once before too, no justice. There's nothing that you can do. There's no just outcome for this Yeah. awful, like nothing, awful, heartbreaking situation. Yeah, like these kids will have to deal with that for the rest of their life. Even the tenure, like it kind of all comes back to being that gray area. Like we said earlier, nothing is black and white where of course it's wrong that the 10 year old is raping the six year old, but it is a gray area because that was passed to the 10 year old. And I think even he will be dealing with trauma for the rest of his life as he grows older and learns that that behavior was not normal and when we was wrong. Yeah. Well, when we, when we talk about, you know, these horrific acts and what monsters these these people are and, and and believe me i am not uh you know going to to apologize for anyone's behavior mm-hmm. okay but a 10 a 10 year old that does this is so disturbed okay right. that there there is a uh, a situation where he is not a monster doing a monstrous act yeah he's a child who thinks that this is okay because mm-hmm. he has been abused in the same manner, you know? Yeah. And, no, absolutely. Uh, correct. And it's 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 such a god-awful heartbreaking situation. It really is. And it's sad how that abuse can just be passed, like, generation to generation or, you know, from one to another, just down to these younger kids. And I'm glad that foster mom noticed something was wrong where she was probably able to get both of these kids help hopefully hopefully this ended a pattern for them um and 
it's well, it's good that it, she was there because a lot of people we, aren't even going to take notice to things. Even if we bounce back to uh, Lashonda and and the boys who you know mm-hmm. had their little you know week long crime spree, uh, what what would it what does it take to break a child that here she's doing sexual favors for every one of her her gang type friends mm-hmm. and deciding to go out and commit murders and robberies uh you know what does it what does uh, what would possess a 14 year old girl to do that well what it does is the parents and or a lack of parents and the abuse from the streets and other family members right and you know uh, i i don't even want to say the system itself cuz that that has nothing to do with the system but mm-hmm. once they're in the system they certainly aren't going to get the help that they need right yeah, you know, it's it's not, just tragic. It's just tragic. It really around. is because, yeah, I always say like when I'm covering stories and, you know, we're talking about a killer or whatnot that is a monster as an adult and we're looking at their childhood. It's like, you know, I always say, well, f- you can feel bad for them when they're a kid, but when they grow up and then they're fully, you know, grown and they're making their decisions is when I no longer feel so bad for them. But when they're a child still, like, and Correct. they're committing all these acts, that's where it gets just so hard. Because, like you oh. said, they're abused children and then their children perpetrating abuse. And it's just the fact that they're all so young, like both those stories, like they're aged 10 to 14, like that's so young. And Correct. yeah, absolutely yeah. learned behavior. And I hate that that's even how some people like how some kids are living a lot of kids, not some, a lot of kids live this way. I mean, child abuse is an epidemic and it, it is like rampant everywhere. And I can't believe that like people just raise their little pure, innocent children like this and like without love. And it's so sad. Oh, it's, it's unbelievably heartbreaking. And, uh, and yes, is child abuse and, and we won't even get into, things that we've talked about in the past as far as trafficking and prostitution mm-hmm. and sex slavery, et cetera, et cetera, is, uh, a, a, just a giant, mm-hmm. giant industry, Yeah, you know? Um, and it's, it's uh, scary. What, what, what more can I say? It's just so God awful. It is. So God awful. Yeah. The abuse yeah. perpetrated on children. And I always really think, you know, there's, and of course there's advocacy groups for children, but so often I feel like they're kind of swept under the rug or like, it's not what we're hearing about all the time in the media and whatnot. And I feel like there should be this bigger outrage for children. But I started to think like people oftentimes are like making noise about things that affect them and like who can make noise adults. Like we're the ones that can go to the media. We're the ones that like have social media and whatnot, but None of us are children. Like, children are the ones being abused, yet they often really don't have well, a voice because... They don't have a voice at all. Yeah. Not only do they, do, they, do they lack the voice or the ability to speak out, who can they tell? Exactly. The, the people that are abusing them are the ones that are taking care of them, or supposedly taking care, or not yeah. taking care of them, you know? Yeah. If, you're, if, if it's your parents that are taking care of you, how do you go to your parents, you know? Exactly. Um, and and not to put the the onus on the school system and or child protective services or but in New York City as I'm sure it is in Idaho where you live, these people are so overworked mm-hmm. and so burdened with case after case after case after case. And as soon as one goes away, the next one comes. And you may right. have sixty, a hundred cases sitting on your desk every day. Yeah. Right? And there's not enough money to go around. There's mm-hmm. not enough quality and again i'm not knocking anybody that's doing the job please understand that but there's not enough quality work mm-hmm. being done or decisive work where where you know the i've seen it many times where the mentality is that the child should always be when possible placed with a relative you know right and given back to the the the, the same parents mm-hmm. and or put in the same household so even if it's not with the parents it's with the grandmother more, yeah. more often than not but it's still in the same family mm-hmm. you know 
And there's so many uh, political pressures within that family to silence right. these children. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's, just, it's such a tragic, awful thing. And yeah. there's, no, there's no right answers, you know. Uh, if, if, if I had my way, everybody would be just be stripped and taken away and, you know, stripped from the families, taken away and, and, you know, put, put on, put on an island of goodness. Uh, it's just, it's impossible. That sounds ridiculous, but there's nothing that you can do, you know, as a system to fix these problems. I know know? it's really, Um, it's really sad. And I just, I always like to kind of point that out that like children don't have that voice. So if you're not hearing about it 24 seven and it's not shoved in your face all the time that child abuse is an epidemic, it's because we really have to like step out of ourselves and like make the noise for them because like you said, they're who are, who can they tell? No one. So, you know, I always encourage people like, just to get involved with like when it comes to kids or you see something or you know there's nothing you can do to fix all these problems and like with the workers like you said like not bashing the workers and I don't think workers in the system that are doing the job good would feel that way they probably understand that there is they are overworked and you know there are these issues but the people who are doing the job and like doing it from the good of their heart they are doing a really oh, hard no. job people, and doing people amazing. Get social, people get into things like social work and policing and, you know, uh, being a paramedic and nursing. Mm-hmm. All of these, these are predominantly, you know, really good-hearted people that want to do the right thing. Right. But again, what happens is they're overwhelmed by mm-hmm. a job that is so daunting. It's such an impossible, yeah. impossible job. You know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the court system, too, is it's the same situation where yep. judges who, who are two or three times removed from the case by the time they hear it, you know, they're restricted by laws. It's not always that the judges are bad. They make sometimes just God awful decisions that we can't understand. Right. But they're also limited in the scope of what they can do. OK. Mm-hmm. And their first, you know, it seems their first responsibility is to try to keep these families together. When mm-hmm. these children should most certainly, definitely, in my opinion, more often than not, be removed from their families. Yeah, and that know? is and of true. Course, once we're in the case of the foster care system, these children have already gone through such situations that they have been removed by, from their, their their families, but now it's it's pretty much too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. When it is like a situation where you just know that the kids are not safe in their house I don't understand why that's the goal you know there you know I've heard stories of people who have maybe been railroaded and stuff like that and it's has nothing like we're not saying those kids should be taken but the ones who are literally abused in their house I agree with you why would the goal be to reconnect them with their abusive parents and I do know that's the goal my mom she works in the NICU And so she works with, you know, social services a lot because they oftentimes have to call CPS for for moms that are in there, you know, that have done drugs and then they have their baby and their baby's withdrawing or whatnot. So, and she does always say that in Utah, the goal of the foster care system is to reunite. And it is sad because oftentimes they just like go through the cycle of trauma if their parents do not get better and then they still reunite or like you said, they're given to a grandparent and their parent that is still doing drugs or still being abusive is still around them. So it is really sad just when it comes to kids. It, I cannot handle all the thoughts of that. So it, it kind of leads me into, you said that um, in a lot of your books or in all of the books that um they deal with the ghosts that like you guys have as cops or first responders um and I think I mentioned to you in the first episode that my dad's a paramedic and he has been for almost 20 years and he hopefully won't care that I'm saying this on here but he has PTSD from it and yes 
he's kind of just learned that in the recent years as he looked into some of his own things in his life or some of his own like addictions or crutches. And he's, as he kind of worked on himself, he ended up being diagnosed with PTSD and it all comes back to like this job just taking a huge toll on him. Like the things that he's seen and he loves the job, but it's also like damaged him and even almost without him realizing it we're now looking back at all the years all these things like have caught up with him if that makes sense oh it absolutely does you know i mean we all you know all first responders it's not police just police obviously you know uh paramedics and emts who i always say are really unsung heroes because you you never see tv shows about you know uh EMTs and paramedics, sadly, mm-hmm. you know, they're not looked at the same way as police no. officers or firemen are. And they know? don't get paid enough. Um, and they don't get paid like, nearly enough. And let yeah. me tell you something. Those people are saving lives every single day. Yeah. All right. They are absolutely heroic, heroic mm-hmm. people to me. I, I, I really have a soft spot in my heart for uh, EMTs, paramedics, whatever it's called in, you know, every different jurisdiction. Right. But yeah, of course, you know, uh, it's unbelievably stressful your adrenaline is up your adrenaline is down um you know you're facing you know the the death or that someone else's death on a daily basis it yeah. has to take a toll on you and the, and it's not again the people that you save those are the easy ones it's the people that you can't save that break your heart yeah. you know and that's like we were talking i think that's where you were kind of going with this little segue here um you know, one of a true ghost of mine, you know, I always, Tommy, mm-hmm. in the books, Tommy Keen always has his ghost. There's always like a little memory or something, right. you know, to kind of tug on your heartstrings. Uh-huh. Um, uh, one one of mine in particular, um, and it's really not much of a story. I mean, all these stories today were pretty short, uh, but it's one that, that still haunts me on occasion. You know, uh-huh. I was a, a young uniform cop again at the time, and I was a new father. I, my, my boy, Nicky, was only about a year old. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a call uh, for a lone child, you know, over the radio, a call for a lone child in front of NCB Hospital. That's North Central Bronx Hospital in the Bronx. Okay. And when my partner and Nikki and I arrived, uh, we found a couple of people who had found this little two-year-old girl still in diapers. You know, that's all. She had nothing on but a pair of diapers. It was filthy. Feet mm-hmm. were just barefoot. Filthy, filthy face, filthy hair, matted hair. Um, I mean, to look at her, you know, all babies are beautiful. And, and she was a particularly just a beautiful little girl, Aww. you know, even yeah. though she was a, a filthy, filthy mess. You know, she had dark hair that went past her shoulders, but it was all kind of snarled and matted, you know, uh-huh. um, uh, like it hadn't been brushed in, in weeks. Um, and But, you know, she was a very sweet and extremely friendly and uh, uh, well, when we first arrive, of course, we take the names and we get all the, the statements from the witnesses, you know, get their pedigree information so we know who they are. All right. Mm-hmm. And um, what was I going to say? Uh, then we went into the hospital, searched the hospital, asked the nurses, tried to get on the, the cameras, you know, and, and find out what we could find. We couldn't find anything, you know. Um, uh, so basically, this, this was a lost child. Uh, mm-hmm. The nurses were kind enough to clean her up a bit. Um, cleaned this little girl up a bit and got her a, a, a fresh diaper and gave us a couple extra diapers to take with us. But in the end, you know, of that, that meeting, we had nothing. Uh, so anyway, well, during this time, you know, this little, this sweet little girl uh, decided that her and I were best friends. Aww. You know, that was it. She just completely that. attached herself to me. And for the next few hours, uh, you know, everything she did, she was just, again, she just, that was it. Uh, wherever we took her, we we took her back to the precinct, uh, called child CPS again, child protective services. We alerted the, the detective squad, you know, to see if there was any missing calls that had come in, anything, anything, anything that anybody could know to find out who this little girl belonged to. Uh huh. Um, and again, that all took you know hours. So all in all, we spent about five hours with this little girl, and um, you know, got her something to eat, played with her, talked with her, tickled her, you know, mm-hmm. made her as comfortable and happy as I could. You know, and then, uh, what do you call it? You know, shift change came and it was time to go home. That was it. So, uh, I handed these, this, this beautiful little honey over to two really awesome female officers who I remember. And I liked very, very much, um, 
What were the names? Avion, Avion, Avion Ramos and Sandy Vasquez okay. uh, were the two girls. And I remember them because, you know, obviously I worked with them when they were, even though this was almost 30 years ago. Um, but anyway, we handed them over to them and uh, I had to go home, you know, so I take the train home, whatever, mm-hmm. done deal. Uh, even though it was just heartbreaking to leave her. Yeah. So I get home. Made that connection. Yeah. I, 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 I get home and when I walk in, uh, my, uh, lovely bride, Christine mm-hmm. tells me, uh, you got to call the precinct. Officer Ramos is looking for you. So I said, oh, yeah, okay. So I call her up, you know, and, uh, Avian tells me, um, what do you call it? She answer, answers the phone and, uh, she says, uh, you know, they had found the, the, the little girl's parents, and they were both junkies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were at the hospital getting methadone at the time and simply just completely lost track of their daughter, you know. Oh, my gosh. So she was just The out detectives there. had gone and, you know, and, and picked them up. And um, they were up in the, the squad room, and they were waiting for, you know, protective child services to come and to take the girl away. All right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, geez, I'm getting a little misty just telling the story. Aww. So anyway, Avion tells me that she's not eating dinner, you know? Uh-huh. And her and Sandy, uh, the two the two cops, are still with her, you know? She's giving them a hard time. She's fighting about everything, okay? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she was so sweet with me, right? Well, they, right. they told her, they said, if you eat your dinner and you're a good girl, we'll let you call, you know, Officer Myers, Travis, all right? Yeah. I so that. I called her and... Uh, I talked to her <laughs> and, you know, we chatted for five or 10 minutes, you know, and then we hung up. Mm-hmm. And after that, I had to excuse myself uh, from the living area where my wife and the, our roommate, uh, I believe it was Russ, was living with us at the time. Uh-huh. And my little boy was sitting and I went into the bedroom and I just cried my eyes out, you know, mm-hmm. over this little girl who, Aww. you know, had two junkies for parents and who I knew for all of five hours of her life. Um, and for me, I mean, of all the god-awful, terrible stories I could tell you and things I've had seen, mm-hmm. somehow just that little girl, you know, sticks with me. And, yeah. um, you know, I don't know. I think it's just guilt on my part, you know, that I couldn't do more. You know, I never saw or heard anything from her again. That was it. She was just a little baby that was, you know, again, in my life for all the five hours and then gone well, it would be and, so man, hard just to like just, see how filthy yeah. she was and not learn that she had parents that were on drugs. And then just knowing like that's the life she's being raised in, like this little girl oh, yeah. who just deserves so much more. Oh, as, as everyone does. And just the way that she had uh, attached herself to me in that short amount of time. Um, I mean, I don't I, I, it was some kind of, you know, she, she looked at me like I was some sort of savior, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, in my mind, you know, and it just hit me so hard because after realizing, you know, uh, I never saved her from anything, you know, I just spent a few hours comforting her and playing with her, uh, probably the way nobody else had, you know, yeah. and, you know, and the whole time my, my partner, Nikki, you know, typed up the paperwork and made the phone calls. He did all the police work while I played with a little, a little girl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somehow I, I now still feel ashamed of myself that I just Aww. couldn't steal her away, you know, Yeah. and, and, it's... and change her life for the better. You know, I know it's like, if only we could save every kid out there, but it probably Absolutely. made it was probably a huge part of her life and she was little, so she won't remember, but just like that moment to be like with someone who she felt comfortable with and who was with like playing with her and like really getting down on her level. Like that had to have been like a huge part of her life at that point. Well, sadly, I, I, I don't even want to think of what her life, where it went, because where could it go? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, and that's that's one of my ghosts that always bothers me personally. And I tell you, I could tell you much more, you know, terrible, bloody, awful, brutal mm-hmm. stories. But, you know, five hours with a two-year-old is, is you know, just one of the hardest things that I've ever, uh, after the fact, you know, mm-hmm. not during the, during the but yeah, after the fact, something great, that still haunts me today. Yeah, it's like that wondering and just like that wishing 
that you could just save them. Like if only we could just take the kids we're worried about and snatch them up and bring them home. But you know, that's not how it works. I wish it was. Um, yeah, sadly no. No, but I, not, I was, I'm, I love that that's like your ghost, even though love is maybe the wrong word because it's like sad, but it shows just like some compassion and how this job affects people, even in these little things where the day wasn't bad and being with the child wasn't bad, but it's like that wondering after and those thoughts after. And that's what really affects me just in true crime the things I look into, it's always like my thoughts in the night that get me, you know, like when I'm researching a case, I'm not like, and I'm really in it or I'm writing a case. I'm sad, but I'm okay. It's when I get to the night and I start thinking of those people, like, why did that happen? Or what did they go through? Or how did they feel? That's what gets me. So it's almost, you know, it's those thoughts you have of this little girl that are what got you, you know, and what yeah. made it stick with you. And sometimes those things, you just can't get them out of your head or your heart. You know? Yeah. And I'm sure, again, back to your, your stepfather. He's, is your stepfather or your father? Um, I'm sorry. My, my dad is a paramedic. My stepdad um, is right. a doctor in the NICU, and then my mom is a nurse okay. in the NICU. Okay. So they I knew there, I knew there was it was medicine all in there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, everywhere. And then so, my dad is a paramedic, my real dad. Now, for your, for your, for your father, and, mm-hmm. and again, even... For your mother and for your stepfather, you know, it's a lot of times it's not. Like I said, it's not the the people that you help yeah. so much as it's the people that you can't help. Exactly. You know? Yeah, that just it's, stick it's with you. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. My dad was writing some stuff, just trying to get some stuff on paper. So I read a little bit of it and he had actually given me this paper years ago, but like I said, I never find the time to do anything or like sit down and like really read something so I was moving rooms around and I found it and I was like oh he gave this to me forever ago I should read it and hopefully I'm not sharing too much about his life but he's just struggled with some things over the years and reading that he he put on paper some of the things he's seen and just like how they affected him and reading it really just gave me like such a different perspective into him and what he went through and why he may be the way he's been or you know just throughout his life and he's a good dad um but just like I said he had his own struggles so I think it's really important to talk about how the job affects people because I mean mainly what you see in the media right now (laughs) is mostly negative about people that work these jobs but it's always good to take a step back and see that these jobs of police officers and paramedics and you know just people in medicine anyone who's saving lives these jobs are not easy and they're these people are bringing it home with them even if they try not to because that's one of the things like that my dad said like he didn't think he was bringing it home with him but it just like affected him without him even realizing as I'm sure it does for most people on the job so I, I, th- I do think it's important to talk about that and just how it affects you and like what you called it, like well, your ghosts, like those are with everyone yes. who do these jobs. Well, that's, that's why we have people like you, Kayla, who, you know, bring things, these things, you know, to light in the media because yeah, the real media, the, mm-hmm. the real media, you know, uh, good deeds, you know, people who do their jobs properly, who are the vast majority Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't sell papers. They don't get headlines. They mm-hmm. don't get clicks. You know, yeah. everybody wants to hear about, you know, some abhorrent act of violence, you know, or corrupt activities because that's so much sexier right. than somebody who does the right thing. Much more you know? scandalous and it gets people. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. and then it really kind of creates this false narrative where, yeah, they're, and I, I agree, like there are bad people in the jobs, but I always say there are bad eggs everywhere. It doesn't matter what job it is. It doesn't matter what political like group you're in. It doesn't matter like what you do. They're religion, non-religious, like there are bad eggs everywhere. And then there are mostly good eggs. 
But it is well, sad I that these like got to say, Yeah. I always like to say I truly believe 90% of the world's population are decent people. Yeah. It's the 10% that screwed up for the rest of us. Definitely. And sadly, sadly, that 10% seems quite often to get jobs at the news. and then talk crash about the good 90 percent yes yes it the narrative behind things is just in the media is not always direct so i am glad to talk about you know these things and like give voice to real people who have lived this life because even sometimes when i'm like talking about a case and sometimes i get riled up like again there are bad investigations there are bad officers most of them are great but sometimes when I get riled up about something and then I'm like talking to my dad about it and not something huge but like let's say something little like a little comment that just seems like insensitive for example my dad will be like I mean take a step back and he's like think we really have to sometimes use humor like honest like he said oftentimes like him and his fellow paramedics will use humor or they're a little d like sensitized to it when they're like at the scene because they really have to separate themselves from like how horrific oh what they're absolutely. involved in is absolutely yeah let me tell you something when it comes to well it's a first it's not a cop thing it's a it's a first responder thing yeah. period i don't care mm-hmm. if you're a cop a fireman again a paramedic yeah uh, nurses whatever i mean foul mouth crude very dark humor Mm-hmm. because you have to get through the day right. and you know what what an outsider may look at is you know i don't know if you put a name on it you know again crass or mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, you know everything is is seen as um geez i can't think i can't think of words today i'm sorry kayla i, I should never be better can. for you <laughs> <laughs> no but uh you know it comes with the territory all right. right. And we, we are also we're just so mean to each other, but it's <laughs> actually the meanness quite often is done out of love because we have right. to get this out of our system or we can't cope. Especially when you're doing these sometimes these cases may 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 last. I mean you might work twenty four, thirty six hours on a case straight. Right. You know, because you've got to get through it. Yeah. Another thing happened. I gotta work it. If you don't have a sense of humor, you know, no matter how dark and, and sordid it may seem, you're not gonna make it in this job. Right. Not, you know, because and, that's like how you're getting through it. So, yeah. Sure. And, I, then, and then some some idiot in the media will take a statement that you made, you know, uh, months ago, years ago, mm-hmm. decades ago. Right. You know, and try to flip things around like you were the bad guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. And that what that has been good for when he lets me know those things, because as an outsider, you can get riled. Like, wow, that was really insensitive or, you know, and of course, like people do need to try to be sensitive, especially with the families and whatnot. But it was good for him to let me know, like, this is how people get through the job. Like they might, maybe some of them are terrible, but he said they're more than likely trying to just get through this. Like it was horrific to see. So I, I'm glad you kind of like have experienced that same thing because I think when you're not in it, like me or most, you know, most people, they, it's hard for them to kind of see that. And so to give them this little perspective, I think is always good. So like having, I like that you have those ghosts for Tommy Keen, the character of your book series, because it makes it more real. And I, that's, what's cool about your books is that it really does come from real perspective. And so it makes him, you know, really like a real detective. And he is because it's kind of based off your experience, right? Well, everything is, again, I'm not that imaginative. I steal everything from real life. (laughs) But it's almost like I like that. It almost makes it better to me because, like, these are things that really happened. Yes, ma'am. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, just the... I love everything about the books from the fact that they are named with the victim, although it's, you know, not the real name of the victim, but these are the names you give them. Um, and then just kind of to have that little insight that 
Tommy always like carries these ghosts or like flashes back to that. I think that's really cool. So I'm excited for your fourth book to come out. And I'm glad that you came on here today to like share these stories with us. Again, I think my audience loved it last time. They'll love it again. And I definitely want to bring you back on as that fourth book kind of comes out too. Oh, please. I love talking to you. And I look forward to, to seeing you again in the future. 